Bible or you have access to a Bible or maybe you are a walking Bible. Maybe you just know the Bible so well you can just go right to it. God bless you if you're that way. Pray for the rest of us. We're not quite there yet. Uh, but we're going to read two short passages of Scripture, familiar passages uh, for a lot of us, but we're going to connect them and uh, today as we sort of venture into what God is going to talk to us about. So we're going to go to Matthew chapter 3, Matthew being the first book of uh, what is considered in your Bible the New Testament and the first of the Gospels. Um, as far as in order of the canon that we have gotten, we've got in our current Bible. But Matthew chapter 3, we're going to go to verse 13. We're going to kind of skip to a very pivotal moment in the life of Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 3, verse 13 says, Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you're coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him, when he was baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water. And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven, saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And if you want to just skip right over to the next chapter, that's the end of chapter 3. We'll skip right over to the beginning of chapter 4. I want you to watch this progression. So we just finished with chapter 3 where we've got the sort of the climatic voice coming from heaven. Jesus comes out of the water. The Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. The voice calls out from heaven. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Very dramatic moment. Then the beginning of the very next verse is chapter 4 verse 1 says, Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights afterwards, he was Hungry. Notice there's something there I want you to draw your attention to, and that is the word then Jesus, then Jesus. I want you to take a moment and, and just work with me here for a moment, because sometimes when we are, we all do it, uh, it's sort of the natural tendency a lot of us have. When we look at certain passages of scripture, especially for a lot of us, very familiar stories in the Bible, uh, this being one of them, um, it's very easy for us to um, sort of kind of disconnect and go, yeah, I already know that, right? You know, you ever been around somebody that's told the same story 15 times? Um, it's very easy sometimes when they're telling that story, you just sort of tune out because I've already heard this. I already know what it's about. Kind of reminds me of the, it, it's, a, it's, an, it's an old, uh, it's, it's a joke. Um, but uh, there is a there was a there was a, a a doctor who came into a city um, to give a lecture to uh, uh, several different universities in the city, and so they hired a driver for him to take him around to the different places to give a speech, and so this was over a couple of day period, and so. 
um, the driver would go with him. And so the doctor struck up a conversation with his driver and um, he said, you know, would you like to come in and I'll, I'll get you in and get you a seat. And you can listen to my lecture and you can listen to my speech and, you know, you're welcome to come. So the driver said, sure. I mean, it's better than sitting in a car, right? So went to the first one and the doctor gets up and gives his speech and the driver listens and then he goes to the second one and the doctor gives the same speech and the driver listens and a third and fourth and fifth and I had done this for for about a half dozen times and finally on the on the way to the last appointment, the last lecture, the last speech, the uh, driver kind of was laughing with the doctor saying, you know, doc, I've heard you say this speech now six times. I guarantee you that I could give, I mean, at this point in time, you're saying the same thing over and over again. I'm sure at this point in time, I could give the same speech you're giving. And the doctor laughed and he said, hey, you know what? Let's do this. Um, they don't know me at this next place. They've never seen my face, so they don't know who I am. Let's switch places. Since you can give the speech like I do, let's 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 throw it. Let's let's change it up. How about you be me and I'll be you? So they got out and they switched clothes real quick. And the driver put on his suit and the doctor's suit and uh, um, put all you know got all the his his the bag and got everything ready because he was going to be the doctor. And the doctor got out and he put on the the driver had a black suit and a black tie and a little hat. And so they switched up. So they got to the next appointment or the next place. And the, and the driver who now is acting like the doctor gets out and says, hello, I'm Dr. So-and-so. And the, and the doctor who's now the driver kind of sneaks in and he gets to the front row and the doctor gets up and uh, the, the driver gets up. Now he's the doctor, right? And he gives the speech. I mean, word for word, everything even told the joke at the right time, gave her the inflections. He told, he gave this speech beautifully. You couldn't, you wouldn't have known it. Nobody knew it. But at the end, the 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 person that was in charge of the uh, uh, of the of the of the meeting got up and said, you know, we have a few extra minutes here. We're we're a little. We actually have a few extra moments here before it's all said and done. Would we, we'd like to get, we, you know, we, this is a rare opportunity for us to have Dr. So-and-so in our presence. And, and so we have a few minutes. We would love to be able to give a time for questions and answers. <laughs> so sure enough, there was a guy in the back of the room. His hand went up first off. They said, yeah, so-and-so, you know, would you, what was your question? And so this guy went on and said, you know, I read in your book, and you made this statement about this, and I'm not really sure if that's correct. Would you, uh, would you care to elaborate on, on, on sort of your position? Because I'm not sure if, you, if that really is correct. And so the, the driver, who is acting like the doctor, he thought about it for a moment, and then he said, you know what, sir, I appreciate your, um, I appreciate your question, uh, but I'm going to tell you something, sir. Uh, this is not to be offensive to you, but your question is so easy to answer. I mean, your your question can be answered by anybody. In fact, I tell you what, your answer is so easy that I'm actually going to let my driver answer your question. <laughs> yes, the punchline is that the driver was the doctor. The point of the whole joke was this, is that you can hear something so much that you think, oh, I already know that, but to know it, because you've read it or to know it because you can repeat it doesn't mean you actually know it. So this passage of scripture we've read was a very pivotal moment in the life of Jesus Christ. Why? Right? It's the baptism and the temptation 
of Jesus. We've, we've heard about the temptation. You've heard about the baptism of Jesus Christ. Even if you're not familiar with, um, with, with Christianity, maybe you, have, maybe you don't really have an understanding of the Bible, but you have, you've heard about maybe the baptism of Jesus Christ and the time he was tempted by Satan in the wilderness. But here we find that there, uh, uh, of the events of Jesus Christ, there's only two events that are mentioned in all four Gospels. One being the baptism of Jesus Christ, and the second one being the death of Jesus Christ. So we find that in these two very important moments that all four Gospels give us a different sort of viewpoint of the same event. But Matthew does something unique. Matthew not only gives us the wilderness story, but gives it to us in a detail unlike the other Gospels. But Matthew kind of brings them two together. He's he sort of, uh, these, these, these back-to-back events that took place sort of in this, probably the most single, most world-changing career in the history of all people, you know, Jesus Christ is three and a half year ministry. This sort of back to back moment of stepping out of being a carpenter into being the, the manifested Messiah uh, to the world. This was sort of the, the hinge, the, the opening act. And these back to back events was a major pivotal moment. And I believe Matthew presents them to us together in a sort of, a, a, a continuous moment um, for a reason. And I want you to, I want to challenge you with that for the reason, because I don't think before we have, at least maybe some have, but maybe we haven't connected the two. Maybe we've looked at them as separate. So Jesus comes to get baptized and then, oh yeah, he goes off into the wilderness. But Matthew does something and he connects them in a way that is trying to tell us something. And here's how he does that. If you go back, uh, there are there's a single word that connects the two different events, sort of seemingly separate events, but Matthew uses a word that connects them and makes them sort of a continuous event, and that is the word then. The very small little tiny word uh, then at the beginning of chapter four, verse number one, then, then, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit. That word then is the connection, the thread that takes these two events that seemingly are separate and brings them together. And the question I have to ask myself is why? And I believe the Lord is giving us the answer to that. And I believe that word, the why to that is going to help you where you are in your life. Because that word then, I believe, is a is is seemingly a small little world word but it is a massive word that i believe unlocks one of the greatest revelations to the danger of sort of religious performance and also one of the greatest words understanding who we are and who the true enemy is that little word doesn't seem like much so i want to talk to you today um about the word win i want you to this is my this is the word this is the subject i want to talk to you about today is then. T-H-E-N. That's it. That's the title. That's where we're going today. It's then. Because just from that moment, that capture this moment, all right? Jesus comes, gets baptized, comes out of the water, 
dove descends on him. The Holy, the Holy Spirit descends on him like a dove. This voice calls out is, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Like this big dramatic, you know, Hollywood cinematic moment, right? Shining, I can imagine the light shining down from heaven. Jesus standing there in the Jordan. His hair is still dripping wet. His clothes are still soaked from the water. The, 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 the Spirit of God descending upon him. And then, boom, there for everyone to hear and see, this is my beloved son. I don't know if God, you know, why does God always have a deep voice? You ever notice that? I don't know if he has a deep voice or not. But it just sounds better if you give God a deep voice. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This massive dramatic moment. And then followed up by then. That word then is almost kind of like you could use it as, you can insert another word we use a lot, is therefore. Therefore. Meaning, therefore, is a connection of event, that one event precedes another. And because of this first event, this next event is able to happen. I, I, I went to the store and got some food, therefore I can cook dinner. I, 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 uh, no, I, I got gas at, the, uh, at, at, the, at, at, at Royal Farms, therefore my car can continue down the highway on our trip. The first event must take place so that the second event can, can, can happen. And that word, therefore, is the thing that threads them together. So if you don't like the word then, you can word, use the word therefore. And you can say something like this. Therefore, Matt, you, let's, let's go back and let's do this, all right? Let's insert. I inserted, I, I created my own little version of the Bible. I'm going to read it to you. And I want you to see if you can notice the difference. We're going to use the word therefore. Suddenly there came a voice from heaven saying, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Therefore, after great blessing and success came trial and temptation. Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted. You can really say that because that's really exactly sort of what happens. There's sort of this massive moment of 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 of, of acceptance and uh, the sort of the ultimate stamp of approval, right? God speaking out of heaven saying, this is my uh, beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This awesome stamp. Then he is led into the wilderness to be tempted and tried. Sometimes we would imagine that those events are flip-flopped. Because in our life, in our, in our way of thinking, in our modern world, we think trials precedes triumph. That we are going to fight and persevere through our struggle and fight and persevere in our difficulties for what happens on the other side. And there is truth to that because the Bible very clearly says that because of the joy set before him, Jesus was able to endure the cross. But, but I think that the, the baptism of Jesus Christ followed by the, the trial and the temptation of Jesus Christ being led of the Spirit to do that. He wasn't off on his own. He didn't often do it on his own. The Bible says then he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. I think this is massive for us to understand something because no one, no one, I mean no one, and people have tried, no one has ever truly been able to secure a life of sustained 
success, joy, and blessing. Nobody. I wish I could mark that. I wish I had a board here. I'd put that, I would put it back here on a board. No one. No one. People have tried. People have attempted, but it's no matter how hard they've tried, no matter what precautions they've taken, no matter how well things have gone, something always seems to come along and mess it up. For even the most talented and diligent and savvy people in our world, even those can't escape sort of the undulations, the ups and downs of life. Oh, we say what you may say, but 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 if we do our part better, if if we try harder, if we live better lives and obeyed God and we prayed every day and we fasted every day and we read our Bible every day and we asked God for his protection from all suffering and all difficulty, that would be it. And my answer to you would be, sure, go ahead, try it. Knock yourself out. Go ahead. Do it. Go ahead and try to attempt to, to, to try to find the magic elixir, right? Try to find the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Do your best to try it. And here's the problem. What if you could, what if you could overcome all of your flaws and flaws? What if you could become perfectly wise and understand God and his ways? You could understand the human heart. You could discern the times and the seasons so that you always made a wise decision. What if you could have faith in God without wavering? What if your life were perfectly pleasing to God? What if you checked every one of those boxes? Then, then, surely, that, that's got to be the magic thing, right? In case you missed it, let's go back over that list again. Let's say you could overcome all your faults and flaws. Check. I mean, that gets a, that gets a boatload of stuff out the way for, for a lot of us. For me, that's massive, right? So I've overcome all my faults and flaws. I, I, let's see if I can become perfectly wise and understand God's ways and I can understand the human heart and I could discern the times and seasons of things and I've always made the perfect and the right decision and what if I could have faith in God without wavering and what if my life was absolutely perfectly pleasing to God? Then, and then I guarantee if I had that, my life would be absolutely perfect. That then I would finally find the way to live this life Elevated above struggle, elevated above pain, elevated above pressure. Ultimately, God would protect me. God would guard me. God would, would absolutely make sure my life went well because everything in my life was checked off. Right? Of course right. Of course I'm right. Right? Isn't that the case? Of course we believe that. That's the way we live. That's the way we that's the what we're striving to be, right? We're striving to get rid of all of our faults and flaws. We're striving to make sure that, you know, we we are we, we understand God's ways and God, and we're trying to understand our own heart, the human heart. We're trying to become perfect and wise and understand how we make the right decisions and we never mess up. And, and we, our faith is always strong, you know, no matter what, God, we know you got it. We're with you all the way. And, and God, I want to be pleasing to you. I want you to be happy with me. I want you to be I want, I want to be pleasing in your sight. We, we get all these things. We strive all these things. But why? 
Sadly, a lot of us do those things because we feel like if we can finally reach all of those uh, those sort of sort of metrics, those markers in our life, we can check off all those boxes. Then and then, God will finally bless us to the point where everything in our life will be absolutely smooth as butter. We will only have mountaintops, and we will only have great experiences. Because, of course, that's what we strive for, right? And if we can achieve that, then ultimately, that's the answer. But can I tell you today that you're wrong? How do I know you're wrong? Simple. Because there's one who did it. Look at it. Jesus' life was perfectly pleasing. Perfectly pleasing. Not just pleasing, it was perfectly pleasing. And not only that, but the, the, the Spirit of God has descended upon him to guide him. And then, on top of that, the love of God and the acceptance of God is affirmed publicly, dramatically, this massive and ultimate stamp of approval after all of this, uh, approval of love, approval of acceptance, approval of perfection. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You can't get a better stamp of love and approval from the father than that. Boom. And on top of that, he's got the Holy Spirit to guide him. Then all of it has to be. But then that little word messes all of it up. That stinking little word just comes in and wreaks havoc on religious ideology that if we can live a perfect life and live a life of high moral standards and acceptance that somehow we can rise above everything in our life and suddenly we are going to find the magic answer the 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 golden city hidden within the the canopy of the of the forgotten jungle or the 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 proverbial pot at the end of the rainbow then but that little word messes us up that word then just completely destroys that kind of ideology because that word then he does this he gets the stamp of love he gets the stamp of approval he gets the empowerment to live and then He's ushered into the wilderness. He's ushered into the clutches of Satan. Then. So I want you to get the order. Ready? Get the order. Because we have flip-flopped the order. So here's the order of Matthew chapter 3 and 4. 4. God's love and power. Then evil, temptation, wilderness, terrible hunger, thirst. Got it? It wasn't. Evil, temptation, wilderness, hunger, thirst, and then God's love and God's acceptance brought me out of it. It was God loved, God accepted, God approved. Then evil, temptation, wilderness, hunger, thirst. That little word then is absolutely revelatory to understand something about God and understanding about something about this journey of walking with him. Because without that little word then, we have gotten this whole thing flip-flop that we are chasing something that God is not trying to do. We are the proverbial dog chasing our own tail, always seeming to get close, but always seeming to be out of grasp. Does that mean that God doesn't want us 
to God doesn't want to change us. No. Does that mean God is okay with some of the stuff in our life and he, he's like, you know what, you do your own thing, I'm okay with that. No. My point I'm making is if you are trying to do things in God so that somehow you can avoid pain and problems and pressure and difficulty in your life and that somehow you can get to the point where God loves you and approves of you enough that you no longer have another bad day, you are chasing a fairy tale. You're chasing a Disney God. You're not chasing the real God. You're chasing a fantasy version of God, a fairy tale version of God, a created human idea of who God would be. But you're not chasing the reality of God because here is the man Christ Jesus, perfect in all of his ways, pleasing to God, stamp of approval, thin, evil, temptation, wilderness, hunger, thirst. I love how Matthew put it. Go back and look at it. Matthew says, Then Jesus is led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And when he had fasted 40 days and 40 nights, afterwards he was hungry. I know that sounds sort of dumb, right? Have you ever gone 40 days without food? I have not personally. I don't really, uh, unless God spoke to me to do it, I don't recommend it. But I know people have done that. And it's kind of dumb to say, well, after 40 days of not eating, they're hungry. You don't really have to say that. That's like, you know, it's like going to say, well, I haven't eaten in three days. Oh, okay, well, that's not a big deal. It's kind of implied that if I haven't eaten in a certain period of time, I'm kind of hungry. In fact, I'm actually kind of hungry right now. I didn't get a good, I didn't eat a very big breakfast. I'm kind of talking about food right now, and I'm starting to feel the anointing for lunch. The point I'm making to you is, is why did Matthew even put in there? Oh, he fasted for 40 days, and then he faced the devil. No, he said he fasted for 40 days and the dude was hungry. Why? It was trying to show that even though he was Christ Jesus, he was still human. And after 40 days of not eating, Jesus was starving. But wait a minute. But wait a minute, time out. He was accepted and loved of God. And then he was led by the Holy Spirit into the wilderness. For 40 days of fasting and prayer and seeking God. Well, of course, if that's the case, then he should have not been hungry. He should have been nourished by the power of God's love. He should have been nourished by the love and acceptance of Jesus, the Father. Of course. Why? That's sort of the idea we get, right? That if I'm doing the will of God and God led me here, I'm never going to have a problem. Well, I'm, in the, I'm in the will of God. My life should be perfect. Well, hello, Jesus was in his will, but he was still hungry. He was in his will, but he still needed a cheeseburger. Side note here, the will of God does not mean there's not going to be emotions and difficulties you're going to have to face. The reason why you walk in the will is so that when you're in the will of God, you know no matter what you face, God's going to take you through it. The will of God is not an insurance policy to keep you from things. The insurance policy is to get you through things. Woo! Come on, somebody. I can't hear you, I can't see you, but I need somebody to give me some kind of virtual amen on that. The will of God is not the insurance policy to keep you from things. The will of God is the empowerment to keep you going through the thing. 
Because the will of God does not mean you're not going to have difficulties. The will of God means you're not going to have, doesn't mean you're not going to be hungry. The will of God doesn't mean you're not going to go to your bank account and go, how in the world am I going to write a check for X when I only have Y? The will of God means, God, you put me here, and because you put me here, I know no matter what it looks like, you have got an answer. If you don't know the will of God, if you're not on the will of God, you can't have that confidence. You got to go to God and say, God, please, please, God, help me here. Uh, could you throw me a bone? That's people who are not living in the will of God. But for those who are walking in the will of God, that no God took them to where they are. He's there. They're in the will of God. They can stand and say, God, you took me to this spot. You brought me here. You brought me in this situation. I didn't get myself into this. You got me. I was led by you, led by your spirit. And because of that, I know you have a way where there looks like there is no way. Don't forget, that's what the disciples forgot. When Jesus said, go and get in the boat, go to the other side, they got in the storm, they panicked. Why'd they panic? They panicked because they forgot the fact they were in the storm, in the will of God. It took Jesus walking on the water for them to snap out of the fact they had gotten in that because God put them in that. What has God put you into that you've forgotten? That instead of going to God, say, God, help me. I don't know what to do. Say, God, no, you brought me to this moment. You took me here. I'm in your will, so God, you have the answer. I trust you with it. But you don't know what I'm going through. It's his will. You don't know what, what, how difficult it is. Are you in his will? See, the will of God is not a, the measurement of the will of God is not difficulty versus pleasure. The measurement of the will of God is simply, did he take you into that? Did you follow the steps necessary in submission and walking him to get you into that situation? If that's the case, you can have peace knowing whatever the outcome is. Just because of the will of God doesn't mean the outcome's always going to be perfect. But you've got to know you're in his will. If you don't know in his will, you can't have that confidence. So it's like Matthew is kind of saying this. He's kind of saying, look, read my lips. That word then, it's like Matthew's trying to tell you, look, read my lips. No one is exempt from trials and tribulations. No one. In fact, it often happens to people God loves very much. It's like he's saying, okay, I'm going to put this word in here then. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus would let out led by the Spirit in the wilderness. It's like Matthew said, let me put this word in here because I want you to see something. No matter who you are, no one is exempt from trials and tribulations. No matter how good you think you are or how good you try to be, nobody can escape life. Boom. Even Jesus. This even goes back to the story in the Old Testament, the story of Job, right? It really tells us why Job's friends were wrong. Remember Job's friends, the one that came and told him, you know, in the midst of the trial, the situation he was going in, right? You remember, the, go back to Job, right? Job, for all intents and purposes, seemed to be living this exemplary life, this, 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 this superb life, this enviable life. Everything in his life was up to par, pleasing to God, but then anything and everything that could go wrong went wrong. Lost his family, lost all of his fortune, lost his health. Sort of like Jesus, Job sort of sent into the wilderness. And Job's friends had come to see him 
And they said this, and I paraphrase, but they said this. They Look, Job, don't you realize our lives are the product of our choices? If you have done something here, obviously you've done something wrong that God's upset. Because if you live right and you do the right things, God's going to bless you. So, Job, your life is a product of your choices and therefore somehow you've missed it. Because if God loved you, there's the famous one, right? We've heard that before. If God loved you, he wouldn't let such a bad thing happen to you. So obviously, if this is happening to you, God must be mad. God must be mad at all of us. He's letting this virus take over our life. God may be mad at all of us because he's letting all of this chaos and, and social injustice and all these things happen. God must be mad, right? No, wait a minute. No, no, no. Read the Bible. I'm not excusing any of those things. I'm not saying they're okay. But you simply think that we can somehow perform to a standard by which all of that's going to go away. We're not being honest with ourselves and honest with our interpretation of the word of God. Because Job's friends basically said, look, we know that the problem you're in here is because of your choices. Whoa, what choice did Job make? He didn't make any choice. What choice did Jesus make? He had the ultimate stamp of the Father. This is my beloved Son in whom I well please. Boom! Stamp of approval. Then Jesus is led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Notice what? And then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the temple where he began to heal everyone. That would have been the better one, right? It should have been Jesus was led out into the wilderness for 40 days. Then after the wilderness... Jesus comes back, is baptized. Then Spirit leads him to the temple where people lined up for days to be healed. It was, yeah, he was baptized. (laughs) Gotta go. That changes some things because some of us are so frustrated. We're so frustrated with life. We're so frustrated at the outcome of things and we're like, God, why are you doing this? I know there's got to be something wrong. Tell me what's wrong. What am I doing wrong that, that, that I deserve such harsh treatment? What if you're not doing anything? What if you're in the perfect will of God? What if you're perfectly pleasing to him? Do you think that will change? So what do you do? Well, I've got to stop doing this, and I've got to stop going there, and I've got to do this, and I've got to do that. And we go through the religious metri- uh, uh, the li- religious uh, benchmarks, right? We've got to do these things. I've got to get my religious card out and go, oh, man, I know my scorecard's way off. Let me get my scorecard fixed. Because if I get my scorecard right, then God's going to change all of it. And we get our scorecard right, and it doesn't change. And we're like, oh, my goodness, what is wrong? And then we start to question, does God even love me? Because if he loved me, why would I be in the situation I am? But, whoa. This is my beloved son. My beloved son. This is the son that I care about. So notice this. We're really looking at instead of getting a pass or earning a pass that takes us away from suffering and inconvenience. We've got to understand what is really the question here. What's really happening here? And really, what's amazing if you look at the life of Jesus Christ, this opening scene, this sort of then moment of leading in the Spirit was actually just the opening round. Because after this, there would be a steady progression. 
of rejection, attempts on his life, betrayal, poverty, grief, loss, torture, finally death. He will be tried and executed in one of the greatest acts of injustice in history. Everything from that point forward in Jesus' life will go wrong. We don't see it that way. We, we see the highlight reel. He healed this person. He cared. But he even made the statement, the Son of Man doesn't even now have a place to lay his head. I don't think that was just metaphorical. We didn't, Jesus didn't have a home. He didn't build a, have a home. I'm saying it's, it's wrong to have a home. I'm in my home right now. But we don't see the other side. We, we really have to look at the fact that from that moment forward, we think Jesus' life went up. But if you looked at the other side of it, from that point forward, his life was a continual cascading series of negative events that finally ended in his death. And the death wasn't even something he did wrong. The death was one of the greatest acts of injustice in history. We look at Jesus' life if he got baptized and from that point it descended into perfection. And I mean, my goodness, we all want to be like Jesus. Do you really want to be like Jesus? Go back and read it. Look at the list. I'm going to read it again. Rejection, attempts on his life, Betrayal, poverty, grief, loss, torture, and then on top of that, death. All of these things were a part of his life as much as the healing and the crowds and the accolades. He was a fugitive half the time. He was someone that was considered to be a troublemaker. He was someone that Rome and Jerusalem had their eye on because this guy is bad news. It wasn't just wonderful and feeding the 5,000 and all this stuff that we think. And I want to be like Jesus because we somehow think we're like Jesus. We're going to float on clouds, be given a halo and a heart, and everything's going to be perfect. And we see this moment of stamp of approval. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then let the roller coaster begin. You're trying to become something and trying to find a life that is not what God wants. So what is really the case here? What really is happening here? Really, several things. One, it's showing us sort of there is a power, there is a complexity, there is sort of a boldness to evil in this world that nobody can be immune to. Even Jesus wasn't immune to it. Jesus wasn't immune to the evil in this world. The problem is we see this nowadays more than ever. That This is sort of the, 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 the new way of thinking. Is our secular world... Uh, believes that the world is strictly made up of material forces, right? It's just it's just material. There's no soul, there's no spirit, no demons, no angels. Everything has a natural sort of scientific explanation, right? Everything has to make sense. That's our world. If we don't understand it, we go research it. We figure it out. If we can't find it, you know, we're going to figure this thing out. We're going to beat the coronavirus. We're going to figure this out. We're going to we're going to have this program to fight this problem. We're going to we don't need this we don't need these people. We need to create a program here for this thing. And we're going to we're going to fix all of this. That's sort of the idea because our world looks at everything as simply material forces. So, in order to deal with evil in this world, our world thinks we can deal with it through either educating the ignorant or changing social systems or maybe providing sort of better psychological or pharmaceutical help. 
I'm not saying any of those things are wrong. I'm, 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 not, I'm not here to make a statement against those things. I'm trying to tell you that that's the way our world thinks because our world thinks that everything can be handled through man's behavioral changes and because to the world it's only material forces because we have no spirit, we have no soul, we have no angel, we have no demon. I read this quote. It was by a, by a professor at uh, Columbia University, a big prestigious Columbia University, he made this statement. He says, a gulf has opened up in our culture between the visibility of evil and the resources available for coping with it. There's a gulf between sort of the boldness and the, the forwardness and the, the, the visibility of evil, right? There's just evil everywhere you look, folks. Come on, get your head out of the sand. There's evil Anybody that doesn't see the evil of this world, you are living in some kind of fantasy place. You're not living it. You can tune out all you want. You can get in your little hole and think, well, it's just, everything's, we're all love. It's love. Everybody loves. You know, you can sing we are family all you want, but the reality is there's evil in this world. There's evil in this Visibility, this forwardness of evil, is creating a gulf between evil and the resources available to coping with it. But you know what's amazing? The Bible is the ultimate bridge for that gulf. You see, that's the problem. The Bible isn't against sort of standing up against systematic injustices or standing up against personal ignorances or even uh, psychological imbalance. God, the, devil, the Bible's not against all that. Some people have misinterpreted the Bible and made the Bible out to be uh, not against all that. The, the Bible says we're a part of this world, right? We're not supposed to be hermits. We're not supposed to be huddled up, detached from the reality and the hurt and the pain of this world. That's not the point. But the remedy that the Bible has is not one that's simply based off just better standards of performance. The remedy the Bible has is the fact that this evil in this world at its core has a supernatural force behind it. It's not just simply forces of human behavior fighting one another, but there's something that's going on that's greater. So deep down, we still try to cling to this idea that there is, if we, if, if, if we are good, life will go well at a core. But the problem with that idea is that there is a demonic force at play in this world. And in reality, what it really means is that true goodness and true godliness will actually act in a way to attract demonic power in your life, not to push it away. The Bible says if, if, if the God of this world knew what he was doing, he would not have crucified the Lord of glory. He wouldn't have done it. He wouldn't have done it. He would have left it alone. And some people think, well, the Bible's just, you know, that's a primitive thing. It, 
it's it's not really uh, uh, it's not really for us today. It's sort of primitive, but the Bible unlocks some things about the understanding of evil and this world, and understanding of how we're supposed to live. That really opens the door for all of us that are trying to live with the idea or cling to the fact that a good life, living a good living good, will equal life will go well. Remember our little word then. So the three things I want to answer really quickly here for the next few minutes, and then I'm. I'm off, is simply this. Who is the enemy? Where's the front? And what is our best defense to fight against it? Because to understand that when the Bible talks about this fight between sort of the forces of this world, it uses battle language. It doesn't use sort of pacifist ideology of peace and love and tenderness and let's all get along and, you know, let's all find our, let's all respect one another and find our place in our world. No, the Bible uses battle language because the Bible is not saying that it's people that are fighting. I'm not fighting people. I'm not standing up against people. I don't care what the people are saying at the core of it. This is not a human problem. This is a problem that stems from the power and the demonic powers that work in this world. Period. Mark it down. I don't care what the fruit of it is. At its core, it's a demonic problem because evil first starts in the demonic. You say, well, I don't believe that's a little crazy for me. Well, put it this way. You might think of the idea of a devil as a primitive idea. You might think of it's for simple people, but I want to say to you today, I would respectfully suggest to you to consider this, that ultimately, if you try to explain the world and the evil of this world without the existence of the devil, then you, my friend, may need the one who needs more understanding. For those that might say, well, you Christians, you just want to, you think that you think it's just the devil, but you know, you think this devil thing, that devil thing is a little, it's a little far-fetched. You know, that's, that's for simple people. We more complex people understand that if we can, we can figure out the magic things that will make all the world better. Can I tell you that if you want to try to explain the chaos, the craziness, the desperation, the evil in this world, the hurt, the pain being caused in this world. If you want to try to, if you want to try to explain all that without the existence of a devil, I think it's you that really needs to get a better understanding. So who's the enemy? The enemy is Satan. The enemy is not my brother. The enemy is not the person across the street from me. The enemy is not the person of another color. The enemy is ultimately Satan. Are there things that need to change? Yes. Are there things in my life that need to change? Yes. But the enemy is not another man. The Bible says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. We cannot perform to a level high enough to create a utopic society where God will finally say yes. These people are perfect. Now I can finally just show them how great life can be. Don't forget, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Then Jesus is led by the spirit into the wilderness where he fasted for 40 days, 40 nights, and was hungry. So if we know the enemy, then the question we have to say is, where's the front? Where's the main point of attack? We find this 
very simply in the, in the, in the story that follows in the temptation. Because numerous times, the devil starts off with this. If you are the son of God. If you are the son of God. The main point of attack is this. If you are the son of God. Right there. This is the main attack, not only against Jesus, but today this is the core of the attack that's on you and I well. Notice, we just had the voice from heaven speak out and just assured that Jesus is the one that is absolutely the beloved and accepted and perfect son of God. And Satan immediately, boom, directly attacks this very thing. If you are the... Can you, I mean, let's just, well, I don't know how Satan sounds, but I can imagine it's sort of this sly, sarcastic. <laughs> if you are the son of God. He knew exactly what he was saying. Basically this. He's asking Jesus this. He's asking Jesus to make God prove that he loves him and empowers him. But the only reason you ask for proof is if you doubt. God had just said, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Satan attacks this. Why? Satan is trying to get Jesus to prove that God really meant what God said. Because ultimately he's trying to get him to doubt. That's his main tactic he uses in all of us. Even today, that's the main tactic. The main tactic he he uses is... He wants us to lose the certainty and the assurance of God's full acceptance and God's unconditional love for us. That's his main source of attack. And so because of that, we fall in the trap of trying to always try to gain God's acceptance and God's love through our works and our actions, trying to prove to God that we are good and that he should love us and that he should accept us. And if he does that, then stop this stinking lie of Satan and then God will make our life perfectly. And the devil goes, I gotcha. Because he knows the truth. He knows I'm not accepted because of what I do. I'm accepted because of who I am. His grace and his mercy in my life through baptism and washing of the blood of Jesus on my life and being called upon by the name of Jesus Christ in my life, that makes me accepted. Not by what I do, but because of who I am. My children are my children that are in this house today and their mother and I love them and care for them unconditionally, not because of what they do but because simply of who they are we don't go to them every day and say guys now if you want to remain in this house you're going to have to earn it today and you're going to have to earn our love because unless we you do it we're not going to love you we don't do that when they get up in the morning they walk down and their mother hugs them and smooches all over them not because they've earned it half the time the night before you went to bed you wanted to kill them my good You've broken up 50,000 fights. You've got dealt with attitudes. And finally, like, that's it. Everybody go to bed. I don't want to see anybody. You're out. Let's go to your beds. Everybody. The next morning they wake up. Loves, kisses, hugs. Not based off performance, but based off of the fact of who they are. But the devil wants to attack that. He wants to accomplish that. He wants to attack the fact to get us 
to really fight the fact that Jesus really is our Savior. That really Jesus is the one who loves us and accepts us. Notice this. We see that Jesus is standing there, still dripping wet. The voice comes from heaven and says, this is my beloved son whom I well pleased. Notice this. This is my son whom I love is a direct quote from Psalms chapter 2, which is a psalm about God's sort of the, 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 the coming Messiah, the coming king, who will come to, to stand and put down rebellion and evil in this world. And then the next thing says, with whom I'm well pleased. So this statement that this is my son who I love, that's Psalms chapter 2. Then the next statement says, in whom I'm well pleased is a quote from Isaiah 53 that is the, is, the, is the scripture of the suffering servant. It paints the picture of the suffering servant. The one that, that will come and be bruised for our transgression. Who, by his stripes, we will be healed. That's the, the image of Isaiah 53. So we've got the, the triumphant Son of love in Psalms 2. And then we've got the suffering servant of, of Isaiah 53. And for the first time ever when Jesus stood there and God said, This is my beloved son in whom I well pleased. We saw the fusion of two promises come together in one, pan, one man. We find the triumphant king and the suffering servant come together through love and acceptance. Right there. This is my beloved son who I please. So we find that he becomes a king who comes not to a throne, but to a cross. He comes to be tempted, tried, suffer, and ultimately die. The ultimate question we have to ask is why? Ultimately this, so you and I can receive God's ultimate love and acceptance as a gift. Not through performance, not through our own acts, not through our own ability, but as a gift that comes. That assurance, that ultimate assurance that he loves me and I am accepted of him is the ultimate foundation and the deepest part of a life-giving, the most life-giving, truest joy possible that you can have. Notice this, on one hand, it means we now want to turn away from any sin or thing that displeases our Father. We no longer do so out of fear of punishment or out of need to prove ourselves. Those motives are exhausting and inevitably create narrowness, self-righteousness, and hardness of heart. No, actually, instead, out of grateful joy and sheer desire to resemble, delight, and serve the one who saved us, we amend our lives with a new desire and effectiveness. You see, why is this important? Because when I change it, I don't try to change my life out of fear or desire to prove myself. I start to change because of my love and desire and affection for the one who loved me. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for me. You see, ultimately this, 
is that Satan wants to attack our core understanding of who we are and what God wants to do in our life. That we're not accepted and loved by him because we reach some kind of standard of moral perfection because some of us are so overwhelmed by our own faults and failures, we've given up hope and think, I'll never be able to be good enough. I'll never get it right. I'll never. I've done too many mistakes. I've made too many faults. I've messed up too many times. I'll never, ever be able to reach it. As if reaching it somehow, we will be able to get God's stamp of approval. And through that stamp of approval, God will be able to bless our life. We'll have cars, houses, and no trouble, no sickness, no pain, no suffering. That's the lie that the devil has tried to sell us. Bottom line. For those that today that believe, today that we receive from God as a gift. We don't have to earn it. We receive it. Satan's desire is ultimately this. He wants you to be confused about the fact that you are justified by faith, not by moral standards or moral efforts. That's ultimately God's love and God's acceptance is not based off what you do, but it's ultimately based of what is in your heart and who you are. We are his adopted sons and daughters by which we cry, Abba, Father. Remember that scripture, Hebrews? We cry, Abba, Father. But Satan tries everything he can to get you and I to slide back into a self-image-based understanding of God that goes into ultimately the the, the desire to perform at a high moral performance of goodness and acceptance. Do you know what we often get wrong? Satan doesn't control us with fang marks on our flesh. He controls us with lies in our heart. not trying to sneak around today and try to Satan's hiding in the bushes today to jump out and go bah, here I am I'm going to get you oh oh yeah, it's Satan I'm going to run no he's smarter than that come on folks he's been doing this for thousands of years you know what he wants to get you to do he wants you to seek God he'll let you seek God he'll let you he'll let you pray He'll let you read the Bible. Nah, he's not going to stop you on that. He's not going to come out and go, you don't need to pray. Praying is bad. You don't need to read the Bible. The Bible is evil. He's not going to do that. He, know he, he knows he can't win that fight. What is he going to do? He'll let you do it. But he wants to flip the motive. He wants to flip the end game. He wants to get you to say, okay, you know what? Yeah, you can do all those things, but ultimately you've got to do those things because that's the only way God's ever going to love you. In fact, why don't you ask God to prove he loves you? Come on, if you're the son of God, if you really are the son of God, certainly you can, you can call these stones and make them bread. You can certainly cast yourself down from this mountain if you're really the son of God. Come on, I know he said you're the beloved son in whom you well please, but if he really was that kind of God, why did he send you into the wilderness? 
once the devil lying to you about the day? What is he trying to get you to do? Is he trying to continue to bring up your past mistakes? Is he constantly trying to tell you you'll never be good enough? You'll never do it again enough? He's reminding you of all the things you've done and all the things of your life that you haven't lived up to. And so therefore, because of those things, you're never going to be good enough for God. And because you're never going to be good enough for God, you're never going to be able to achieve anything that God wants for you in your life. And God's never going to be able to do anything in your life. And you're just going to constantly just hang on. And you're going to be one of those people that just barely sneaks into heaven just slightly because you're so bad. God's almost given up on you. And I don't even know if God even loves you because if he loves you, he wouldn't let all this stuff happen in your life. And if God really loved you, he wouldn't let all the evil in this world take place. But ultimately, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And Jesus was led of the wilderness, tempted. Can I challenge you today? In the name of Jesus, I take dominion and authority over every lie of Satan that is warring in any heart in any life that is watching today or any of those that are going to watch. I take dominion and authority and rebuke it in Jesus' name. And I speak today, God, that you would open up our eyes through the revelation of your word of who we are, that we are your children and that you love us and did you accept us not because we lived up to some standard, but you love us while we were yet sinners. Rebuke every lie. Rebuke every lie in Jesus' name. Some of you, I can feel you live under so much pressure. You live under so much condemnation. You live under so much frustration because this mutter hard heart you try, it just doesn't seem like you can ever get it right. Why? Because you're trying to chase the wrong thing. You're trying to chase away. You're trying to go to the palace instead of the wilderness. You're trying to chase the throne instead of the cross. You're trying to say, this is my beloved son in whom all please take me to the throne. Take me to the palace. No, he's trying to take you to the wilderness. He's trying to take you to the cross. Not because he hates you, but because he loves you. Not because he's displeased, because he approves. This is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. Then Jesus was led of the spirit into the wilderness where he was tempted and was fasted for 40 days and 40 nights and he was hungry. Don't judge you and your relationship with God by your surroundings. Judge who you are because of who he's made you. Fall onto the altar of grace and mercy today and say, God, here I am. All my faults, all my failures, I'll never be able to do it good enough. I'll never be able to get all of it right. But God, I'm just here as I am. I give you my five loaves and two fish. That's all I've got. But what I have, I give. God's not asking you, my friend, to do something you can't do. He's only asking you to do what you can. And that is just give him you. Don't ask. He's not asking for more. He's not asking you to live to some standard that seems impossible. He's not asking you to live up to some religious piety where you never have a bad thought, never have a bad day, never have a bad word, never do anything. For those of you that live like that, you're living it in self-righteousness. Those of you that practice, I never, I'm always just, my life is perfect. I'm this, I'm that, I read the Bible. You know what God does to all that? I'm not trying to be mockful today, but that's exactly how God looks at that. He looks at all that self-righteous 
mere marks, well, I've done this and I've done that today and I've read my Bible and I've read this and I've prayed today and I've, I've, I've fasted last week and I, I, I talked to God and, and do you know what? I shared God's love with It's you, 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 you. You know why you can tell somebody how many times do they use the word I? I've done this. I've gone this. I've read my Bible. I preached. I did this. I laid hands. I, 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 I. You're an iPhone. You're an iPad. You're an iMessage. You're a selfie. And God goes, Because it's all self-righteous. You're only doing it not because of him. You're doing it to, to up your approval. So you can feel better about you. Because you haven't accepted that he loves you right where you are in the fractured brokenness of your lack of performance. And so you're going to try to prove to God, but also you're really trying to prove to yourself. Because you didn't get love from a father. You didn't get love from a mother. You were rejected here, rejected here. And so you feel like, I've got to do that. Can I tell you? It's a lie. And the devil has convinced you of something. And you didn't even realize you bought the bait. Eve, you didn't even realize the apple really is not going to make you like God. But you bit it anyways because you didn't realize. And understand, the word of God says he loves you for you. With all your brokenness. With all your imperfections. With all your flaws. You know why? Because he ain't fixing some of them, isn't he? Yep. Is he fixing all of them? I'm not excusing bad behavior. I'm not excusing the fact you're a jerk and you need to change. Okay? I'm just simply saying, if you're a bad person and you're a jerk and you treat people nasty, don't be blaming it. Well, that's just the way I am. That's baloney. You're a jerk. You need to change. Is that too bold for you? I could be bolder. Bottom line is this. God's not looking for perfection. God's not looking for performance. This is my beloved son whom I'll please. He's looking for people that will just say, here I am. And that will walk in faith and confidence. You have a choice. You're going to still chase your tail by listening to the lies of the adversary. Are you going to finally accept the word of God and the truth of the word of God? If the devil can so doubt in you that you're going to make God prove God show me you love me God if you really love me will you do this God if you really care about me answer this prayer you have just proven whose voice you're listening to the moment you ask God to do that you're asking you're listening to the wrong voice because God doesn't have to prove anything he's already proved when you were bought by his name and filled with his spirit you are approved of God doesn't mean you don't have, doesn't mean, I'm not saying you can go live off the chain. Time out. I hear some of you go, yeah, that's it. I can go do my own thing. Nope. Time out. Back up the truck. You done left me in here. No, 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 no. Not what I'm saying. I'm saying is you cannot produce a life of performance to the way that you can get to the performance of perfection where God's not going to, that God's going to make you immune to life. Remember the word then. Jesus was loved. And accepted. Therefore, he was led into evil, temptation, trial, thirst, hunger, betrayal, sorrow, pain, anguish, attempts on his life, ultimately death. Not because he was hated by God, but because he was a love of God. Not because of his disapproval, because of his approval. Stop chasing the fantasy this world's trying to give. Stop listening to the lies of Job's friends that say you're just a product of your choices and if you make better choices, your life's going to be better. You can make the right choice. You can make the choice that God gives. It doesn't always mean it's going to be perfect in your eyes. But 
His ways are above our ways. His thoughts are above our thoughts. And you know what? In the end, what does this teach us? The Bible says we have a high priest who is touched by the feelings of our infirmity. We can overcome today just like Jesus did. He overcame by the word, but we also can overcome because he overcame. So even in our weakest moments where we are struggling to believe in his word, we can look to him who's the author and the finisher of our faith and say, God, I, I don't have it, but I accept your grace today because you said that you could do in me what I think is impossible, but with you, it is possible. I challenge you today with that in Jesus' name. Don't listen to the lies of the adversary. Listen to the voice of truth. Listen to the voice of love and acceptance. You are his child. He loves you. But you know how bad my life is. No, 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 no. Go back and look at the story. He's loved and accepted, period. Anything else is a lie. Receive that today. Resist the devil. Resist the lies of Satan. Accept the love of Christ in your life. And if you do that, pressure is going to go away. The frustration is going to leave. And you're going to walk in peace and joy. Your circumstances may not change. It may be just as chaotic tomorrow. Maybe worse tomorrow. But it won't matter to you because you'll live in peace and joy that will surpass your understanding. In Jesus' name. Would you lift your hands right now and just say, God, I accept it today. I don't know how. I, I, God, I, I know I hear what you're saying, but I really don't know how to do it. But I speak in faith today. Lord, I accept your love. I accept it today. I accept that you're pleased with me. I accept your love. Lord, if there's anything in me, God, that, that needs to be taken out, Lord, I don't want that taken out out of fear of punishment or out of some desire for a better standard or performance. But God, I want them out because, Lord, I don't want there to be anything between you and me. I don't want there to be any sin. I don't want there to be any unforgiveness. I don't want there to be any grudge. I don't want there to be one small paper-thin wall that would keep me from being next to you, connected to you. So, God, if there is things in me, don't... Show me those things so I can become better and perform better. Show me those things so that I can get closer to you. So I can find you in a better way. So I can get right in your arms. Wrap me in your arms today, God. I want to feel your love. I don't want there to be anything between you and I today. So if there's anything in me, God, that keeps me, any burden, any weight, any sin that I'm carrying that keeps me from being able to fully embrace your love today, I'm asking you, Lord, show those things to me so I can... Give those things to you, not so I can perform better, but because I want to be connected to you every day in a greater way, in Jesus' name. Don't just pray that today. Let that become the prayer of your heart every day, God. Is there anything between you and I that keeps me from connecting to you? Not so that you can perform, so that you can be connected. You can walk in faith, walk in love, and walk in acceptance. Love all of you. Appreciate you being a part of today. If you're able tonight, we'd love to have you. 7.30, right at home. Come hang out with my wife and I. And uh, hope you have a wonderful day. But let's walk in love and walk in acceptance. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. But don't forget 
There's a then. But God has given you the power and the grace through him to overcome the then in your life in Jesus' name.